So welcome to the Elevating Voices in Leadership podcast brought to you in partnership with Pepperdine University's Graduate School of Education. I'm Dr. Gabriela Miramontes and I will be your host today. With me today are my co-hosts. It's Dr. Asia Ghazi, uh, Dr. Renee Dorn, our Alumni Relations Director, uh, Dr. Sonia Sharififard, and our esteemed guest tonight is Ryan Dusik, who is an Associate Marriage Family Therapist with an MA in Clinical Psychology and the founding drummer of the world's most popular band, Maroon 5. Uh, founding the band, Kara's Flowers in 1994 with fellow Brentwood High School students, Jesse Carmichael, Mickey Madden, and Adam Levine. Ryan worked tirelessly through his college years at UCLA before the band changed its name to Maroon 5 and finally had its first hit record, Songs About Jane. Multiple hits, multiple hit songs, two Grammy Awards and 20 million album songs, albums sold later, Ryan found himself suffering and without direction as his career as a performer came to an end, just as it was taking off. Struggling with physical and mental health challenges, Ryan finally overcame his struggles in 2016 when he began his journey of recovery, culminating in a new life path full of meaning, purpose, and fulfillment. Now working as a mental health professional at the Missing Peace Center for Anxiety in Agora Hills, California, Ryan is spreading the message that recovery is possible and some stunning things can come with it. So we welcome Ryan today to talk about um, his upcoming book, his journey, and the impact he's having. So welcome, Ryan. Thank you so much for having me on. This is so great to be able to uh, speak to you guys and talk to the Pepperdine community abroad. Wonderful. Well, the reason we brought you on tonight is really to hear, um, I know I just gave a snippet of your journey so far, which I mean, it's pretty impressive. Um, but at the same time, I know that you have some challenges to share. So why don't you tell us a little bit um, about your journey and how it led to the book that you're currently promoting? Yeah, well, thank you. Um, God, my my story is a, is a long one, and I'll try to give you the short version. <laughs> um, you know, as I tell it in the book, uh, I grew up in LA, and I had a, a dream as a kid of being a baseball player. That was my first passion. Uh, but as a teenager, it became music. Music was my my sort of teenage angst and uh, rebellion and passion, and everything all rolled into one. Um, and I was lucky enough, lucky enough to have these friends of mine at Brentwood School uh, that were that shared that passion with me, and we started this band that began this journey for me. That was something I couldn't have anticipated. It would have gone the way it did over a decade, from age 16 to age uh, 28 when I left the band. Uh, it went from my parents' garage, you know, uh, banging on the drums, and just you know, it was the early 90s when we started the band. It was the era of grunge and garage rock. And that was where we were at that point in our lives. And then fast forward a decade later, and as Maroon 5, uh, we were playing on the world's biggest stages and, you know, uh, live TV on Saturday Night Live and winning Grammy Awards and all of that. So we could not have foreseen that. And it was our dream. It was everything. And just as we were getting to the the apex of that dream, reaching the, the top of the mountain, uh, I started having some real problems, which at the time were physical problems playing the drums, but in retrospect, I'm able to recognize the psychological aspect of it that played a big factor. And uh, the mental health uh, issues that really, for me, started before that, I just really didn't have a vocabulary for it at that point in my life. Um, but it really came to a head for me in the years after I left the band when I, I suffered a real breakdown uh, that led to pretty severe anxiety disorder, depression, 
um, and alcoholism for about a decade, which thankfully I finally found recovery from in 2016, which started this whole new chapter of my life, it led me to Pepperdine uh, graduate school, you know, uh, to study clinical psychology and become a therapist. And it's really been the last six and a half years of my life have been this really magical time where I've found new purpose and new passion in my life. Um, and I've become a therapist. I've written this book about my journey and realized that th this was the time to tell my story because it, it has a happy ending now. And it's something that, that can provide some hope for people that might see themselves in my mental health journey. So I tried to be really honest and really vulnerable in the telling of my story in a way that people, even if you haven't been through the, the particulars of my life in terms of music and all that, just you know, could relate to the to the emotions involved and the the mental health struggles and see in my recovery, the opportunity for yourself to find the same kind of hope. Thank you for sharing that. So what made you decide to write the book? I mean, you know, I understand the practice and, and this challenge, but why the book? Well, the book was something that I actually had first thoughts about maybe five or 10 years earlier when I was still really struggling with having left the band and dealing with the grief of uh, the loss of that whole career, uh, not just the career, but my identity really was wrapped up in being the drummer in Maroon 5. And, um, you know, I, I I was even approached at that time to write a, a book or have somebody write a book with me or for me uh, about my story. And I turned it down at that time because I felt like First off, if I was going to write it, I was going to write it myself. <laughs> a little bit of pride involved there, but also I, I was I had an English degree from UCLA. I thought I figured, uh, you know, if I was going to write it, uh, it should be me. Um, but also, just I didn't know what the purpose would be at that point in my life because I was struggling, and it was a sad story that didn't really have a happy ending. Uh, but then, when I was in recovery, and I I had been volunteering at a recovery center for a couple of years, which kind of led me uh, back to school. And in the course of doing the recovery work, uh, the 12 steps, my own therapy, and then studying psychology at Pepperdine. Um, and you have to do, of course, a lot of self-reflection papers and stuff. You know, as you prepare to be a therapist, you have to make sure you've done your own work. Um, I realized a couple of things. First off, my passion for writing, which I had forgotten about. Um, you know, music was my life for so long that I'd forgotten that I loved writing and that it was something I, I thought I was pretty good at and enjoyed doing. Um, and then also that I had this clarity in the way that I was talking about my mental health that I had never had before and a, a real uh, insight into what had been my issues going into all of that, what I had struggled with going through it and afterwards. And my first impulse was to kind of do a case study on myself, <laughs> as we do <laughs> in grad school. Um, and then I realized I need to make it, I needed to write it more in a, in the, you know, the common vernacular so that not just grad students would necessarily relate to, uh, the book, but that was really the impetus for it was writing self-reflection papers and realizing I had a story to tell that was unique and hopeful and that I was the person to do it. And it was the perfect time to do it. So I actually wrote it while I was still in grad school. <laughs> oh, nice. So backing up a little bit what prompted you to decide to become a therapist well like i said i was um volunteering at a addiction recovery center uh for two years i started that when i was only like six months sober i was just leaving the the center myself and they offered to me to co-run or co-lead groups 
and to just be a, a peer support volunteer, which I figured was great for me. It was flattering that they asked me to do that and that they thought that I would, would be good at that. Um, and it was great for my recovery to be of service to people that were just starting their recovery. And what I discovered in doing that was that um, I, I had some talents that I either didn't realize I had, or again, I had forgotten about because my life had been so wrapped up in that identity as, as a musician. Um, and I was getting a lot of positive feedback, which was both good for my confidence, which had been really beat down in those years of struggle, um, but also made me realize that I had something to offer, that I, I felt a responsibility to, to give of myself in that way at this point in my life, um, being in my 40s now and, and being in that phase of life where, um, you know, I just I'm thinking more about um, what I have to offer the world and what my legacy will be as much as, you know, who I am. Um, and so it just seemed like a no brainer. It was like, if I can do this at a higher level, if I can go back to school and get a degree and, uh, and do it professionally, then I could help people even more. And I was getting a lot of support and encouragement to do that. I didn't know that I would have the ability to get into a place like Pepperdine, um, with an undergrad degree in English. I didn't know if I needed a social sciences degree or, um, I did have to take, you know, the, 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 uh, preparatory classes, you know, to, to go into switch into that, um, field, but it worked out and, you know, I applied and within a month I was starting classes and getting going. And it was just like, wow, I, I couldn't have foreseen it a couple of years before. And it was a dream come true. Thank you. Hi, Ryan. Um, a question I have you, you being a therapist, um, the patients that you meet with, do you see some of the things, um, in yourself that they go through, maybe some of the things that they've described to you, how they're feeling? Do you understand them a lot better because you feel like you might've gone through some of those same things as well? Absolutely. You know, I think that besides my education at Pepperdine, the, the, the thing that informs what I do as a therapist now most, the thing that I think I have to offer that is unique as a therapist is my life experience. Um, it was very apparent to me that going back to school, uh, when I did, you know, 20 years after my undergrad, um, that it was having been through everything that I had been through in life, um, it, that brought something to the table that maybe some of the people who had just come from undergrad didn't have. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I, I really did, did feel that, that, that it was a uni unique opportunity to understand my clients. Uh, and to give of myself in terms of the things I've learned in my personal life, not just in terms of my education. And yeah, when I when I'm in session with my clients, a lot of stuff does come up that I'm like, I can relate to this so personally. And I think I do probably self-disclose more than a lot of therapists for that reason. I, and I always have to, you know, check myself and make sure it's it's for the purpose 100% of uh, being helpful. Um, but I do think that that having lived through a lot of the things that my clients uh, bring up that I, I usually have a story or two to share of my own that relates to not just what they're going through, but you know, ways in which I was able to overcome it or find um, lessons in life that, that have helped. So yeah, absolutely, I, I, that happens a lot. Very nice, very nice. I saw in your book that you have even some resources that uh, would be helpful to those who may need um, assistance or need, may need some help. So I, I thought that was very interesting that you added that. To your book. 
Yeah. And I put it at the front of the book because, you know, I think if you tell your whole story and people are, might be triggered or, or feeling, you know, um, it's bringing things up for them that they haven't really dealt with and are uncomfortable and you haven't given them the resources yet, um, you know, it might be a little late at the end of the book. So I put it in the, in the, uh, the opening, you know, the prologue uh, so that uh, it's a little bit of a warning, you know, this, there's some heavy stuff in the book, you know, it's, there's a lot of fun stuff in the book too. I, I, I wanted it to be inspiring on the front end in terms of just how, how much inspiration and passion and fun there was in the, in the, in the formation of the band and the, the pursuit of everything we did, but it does get to some really heavy and dark places when, when things get bad for me. So, you know, I wanted to let people know that up front and give them some opportunity to have a way to reach out if they needed to. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I really liked the um, the forward written by Adam Levine. I, I thought that was really great. Now, um, and you two still keep in touch um, with him as well as your other bandmates? Yeah, I actually keep in touch with Adam probably the most of anyone in the band. You know, we're like brothers. We've We've known each other since we were kids and we spent um you know a decade plus you know building that band and and in a in a van and then a tour bus you know on the road together so we're like old army brothers you know um and his life is crazy you know in a totally different way than mine is at this point and so we're, we're in very different places in life but we still reach out to each other and and connect and he talks to me about you know his family and what's going on with him and 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 you know, picks my brain sometimes about what's going on with the band and, uh, and I'll, and I'll let him know what's going on with me. And we just, we, we joke around like we're teenagers still. Cause that's really, I mean, I, when I think of him, I think of him as being 14 years old you know? <laughs> <laughs> and I think probably the same, he thinks of me at 16. Um, so yeah, it was, it was a, a kind of an obvious choice for me to ask him to do the forward. And he was very gracious to do it and it, and I was really touched in what he wrote because he obviously took his time um, reading it and and giving a really thoughtful introduction to the book and and it was really lovely to see. Could you talk a little bit about the title of the book and how it relates to the song itself? Yeah, you know, I chose the name Harder to Breathe before I even started writing the book. And uh, there were a few reasons for that. It just it, it seemed almost too obvious to not name it that for a number of reasons. One, because I really related to the to the phrase harder to breathe uh, as it relates to my anxiety, how I experienced it as a teenager, how I experienced it when I started having panic attacks in my 20s and 30s. Um, the first time I ever really related to anxiety, it was this feeling, this lump in my throat this feeling that I uh, couldn't really catch my breath. I felt a little lightheaded and just disconnected from my surroundings and very conscious of that feeling in my throat. And so that's kind of where it begins. But then also, I mean, people obviously associate that song with, I think, the beginning of the Maroon 5 success. It was the first mm -hmm. single that we had that was a moderate hit. Um, and it's an intense song, which was written out of a certain amount of angst. Um, and also, uh, that was the song that for me, we performed literally for like a year of my life. We were promoting that song. It was a very slow build mm -hmm. uh, when the album Songs About Jane was coming out. And we we were going city to city, radio station to radio station, performing that song over and over and over again. And then it started to have some success and we were playing it on every late night show and everything 
for from like the summer of 2002 to the fall of 2003 and so in a lot of ways that was the the song that i associate with the grueling schedule and work that i did during that time that really started to take its toll on me um which i lay out in the book in terms of the this sort of breakdown that it leads to Mm -hmm. so it has both of those connotations for me it's just a phrase that i relate to anxiety but also the song itself being very very tied into my identity as the drummer of the band and and what happened you know at the end of it right wow that's great thank you thank you for for sharing that because that's so it's exciting to hear about your beginnings and how even the title fits into um your work in the band yeah you know it's uh it was we 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 had like four singles on that album, but that one in particular, it was like, there was a lot of, like I said, a lot of angst in the writing of that song. There was a lot of angst in the performance of that song. It was the one song from that album that kind of harkened back to our teenage years, you know, <laughs> in terms of the, the, the early years when we were, um, you know, just brooding, well, at least I was a brooding teenage boy going through all of the growing pains that you go through when you become disillusioned uh, and and trying to find your own identity. So it, it it's just a song that I relate to, even though Adam wrote the lyrics, but we all related to it a lot because it was coming from a place of angst. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for that. So as you've gone through this whole transformation if you will going from who you were and the identity as a musician to um a therapist and and working with uh working with your your clients through their own challenges um have you had any aha moments have you ever had any moments have you experienced anything that that left a mark on you I'm sure you have many but I mean you know any stories that really were surprising to you or that you weren't expecting in this journey as a therapist? As Ryan Dusick. <laughs> well, there's been a lot of things that I, I haven't expected uh, in my life. Where to where to begin? Um, you know, I mean, we, like I said, we, we started, you know, in a garage, and then we ended up doing things we couldn't have possibly dreamed. Uh, meeting some of our heroes, I got to go to Prince's house twice. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and watch him rip a guitar solo in his living room. So that was something you don't expect to experience in life right (laughs) and uh we even got to perform on stage with stevie wonder once who was another one of our biggest heroes as a musician and um so just stuff like that you just incredible moments that that um i you know i treasure as painful as as the end of that career was for me um i i'm in a place in my life now where i'm able to look back on it uh with so much pride and uh, and just recognize that it was a really special thing that we did and that we got to uh, experience, uh, not just in terms of the success we ended up having eventually and and the things we got to do, but just the 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 fun and the and the connection, the spiritual connection that existed between the the original band members and nobody tells you it's the good old days when you're in the middle of it you know (laughs) looking back now just recognizing that making that album songs about jane was something that uh we had all been working towards our entire lives up until that moment and i think that everyone in the band can recognize now that that was that's was a, a a totally unrepeatable experience it was magical for us as people it was magical for us as musicians and as a group 
and it was magical musically. And, and so, yeah, I mean, just getting to, to have that, all of those experiences are things that I, I treasure and things that I couldn't have anticipated. Um, but then I'm on this whole new journey now that I couldn't have anticipated. And I, I, you know, when I was just getting sober, when I was in early recovery, uh, I had heard from a couple different people, my, my therapist in particular, actually, who was another guy who had um, gotten sober in midlife and gone back to school to become a therapist and a drug counselor. And he, he told me early on, he said, you know, at your first sober birthday, um, you're going to feel totally different than you have, you know, for the last 10 years, you're going to be in a totally different place in your life. He said, at your second one, you're not even going to be able to recognize the person that you were when you were in your addiction. He said, at year five, you're going to be doing things that you never could have possibly dreamed you were doing. And you can't even imagine what they are right now, because there's no way you could even like foresee that. And I, when he said that, I just like, I kind of like chuckled and smiled and rolled my eyes because it just sounded so far off and impossible to imagine what that would look like. I was just trying to be sober and figure out how to live my life uh, again in a way that was going to be um, comfortable and not anxiety inducing and not depressing and, and finding any way to do that. And at that point in my life, it was just doing the stuff for my recovery and being of service to others. That was the extent of it. Uh, but then, you know, as I did one, you know, you put one foot in front of the other and you do the next indicated action over and over again. And the next thing was volunteering. And that led me to go back to school. The next indicated action was, you know, going and getting a degree. And then it was figuring out that I wanted to be a therapist and it was writing the book. And it's like, I look at my life now and he was absolutely right. You know, <laughs> there was, there's so much going on in my life now that, um, five or 10 years ago, there's no way I could have possibly foreseen. Um, and I, if you had told me I'd be doing it, I probably wouldn't have even known that it would be so fulfilling because I was in, when you're in addiction, you're in a place of self-obsession and you're wrapped up in your own, uh, crap <laughs> really. And, and then to get out of yourself and to actually be, uh, helpful to another human being and find what's fulfilling about that and find purpose and meaning in that, uh, those are things I could not have foreseen. So it's it's a whole other level doing that at this point in my life. Not that it wasn't fulfilling, you know, to make good music and to entertain people. That's that's a real uh, pleasure and a great ex experience as well. But it's a whole other level when you have that altruistic element of being of service. Mm -hmm. Well, Pepperdine's motto really is, you know, creating uh, opportunities for purpose, service, leadership, or actually elevating our students to lead lives of service purpose and leadership. Um, and that's exactly what you're describing here. Um, colleagues, anyone else have any questions? I don't want to dominate the conversation. No, I, I, ha I have another question. So you talk about your love of writing. So do you have any other uh, books in mind um, to share with us? Or, or is, are you interested in doing any more writing of music? Great question. Um, you know, it's funny. I, when I was writing this book, uh, I think it was probably in the second draft when I got to about chapter three of the second draft, and I really started finding my voice and realizing that I, I was on to something. Um, I really got the bug. And I, and I, and I said to myself, I, I'm going to be doing this for the rest of my life. Like, this is the first time that I've felt this way since making music with the band. You know, that level of passion and as we say in positive psychology, flow, 
you know, feeling in flow. When I was writing and working on this book, it was like time had no meaning. You know, I would be writing for hours and didn't realize, oh, I haven't eaten. And then, you know, it's just like, because I was so wrapped up in it. And so when I finished writing the book and I was putting the finishing touches on it and I was, we were, you know, picking photos for the cover and all that stuff. I was already saying to myself, I want to start writing another book. Okay. Oh, great. <laughs> but I will say that I, it was my lifelong passion or my lifelong um, fantasy of writing a novel, which was what came to me at first. And um, I said, I said that to the, you know, the people that I got involved with the agent and the publisher that I got involved with. And they kind of chuckled and said, well, if this book does well, I have a feeling there are going to be people that want to hear, you know, see more books in the mental health area, more uh, nonfiction. Um, and, and I, and I thought to myself, well, yeah, that's probably something I I'm going to want to do as well. Mm -hmm. uh, and probably the logical follow-up to a book like this would be to do something else in that area. Um, and I do have more to say, you know, this is a very much a personal book and it's very right. much uh, an autobiography or a memoir. And I probably have more to say uh, in more detail on some of the subjects in it. Um, but, you know, I do want to write a novel too. <laughs> so we'll see. <laughs> Oh, and music. You asked about music. Yes. Uh, yeah, I mean, music, I, you know, I'll be honest, my relationship with music is a complicated one. Um, mm -hmm. It was my biggest passion. And then it was also something that was caused, you know, more pain in my life than anything else, probably. It was my biggest heartbreak. Mm -hmm. So uh, I have, you know, written and, and I did some producing and stuff after I left the band. And I could see myself doing stuff like that again, if the timing were right and the context were right. Mm -hmm. uh, I haven't had a whole lot of time of late because I've been, you know, getting, becoming an associate and building a, a, you know, a practice and working at the clinic and all that stuff, as well as promoting this book now. So it hasn't been, uh, you know, too much there to work with in terms of getting back to the music, but uh, never say never. And I definitely want to try to incorporate that in any way that I can in the future. That sounds great. I look forward to the next book. Okay. Good. <laughs> Along those same lines, I know you mentioned that that your relationship with music is complicated. So um, if th this conversation path isn't acceptable, we can skip it. But I'm wondering, do you um, do you ever consider using music as part of your therapy? Not your music in particular, but just music, you know, music therapy as part of your practice? Yeah, I've thought about that. And and. And by the way, uh, my life is an open book. There's really very little that's off limits. I mean, there might be a few things, but, Fair <laughs> but, <enough. in> general, <laughs> but you know, I've made a point in, in writing the book and in talking about it and telling my story. It's like, it, I, I, I realized early on in the writing of the book that, that I'm not helping anyone if I'm not being fully honest and, and transparent and, and vulnerable. And I'd like to be a model for, for vulnerability too. I find in my work that um, men, in particular, I have a real difficult time with vulnerability a lot. And I've realized that if I can, if I can be a model for that, then uh, that's being uh, doing a service uh, to, to people that, that are, you see that, you know, um, but, you know, yeah, incorporating music therapy. Uh, it's something I've thought about. It's something that uh, I certainly talk with my clients about music if they want to. At the clinic that I work at, at the Missing Peace Center for Anxiety, we do have a music therapist there. Uh, who does drum circles and plays guitar with them and gets them to sing the blues and and do all kinds of great stuff and she's probably more qual qualified to do it than I am because she's worked with kids at a at a high school for
for the last I think 20 years or something like that and she's a, a professional musician she's played with like um symphonic orchestras and stuff like that she plays a number of instruments and much more accomplished and, and trained than I ever was <laughs> so it's great to, to have that uh, at our clinic we have a lot of different modalities and and it's and to have the creative aspect uh, I think that's really helpful if I were you know, just myself in a private practice or in some other setting where that weren't available, I certainly would try to find ways to uh, incorporate it. Um, I think that even for people that aren't musicians, you know, people that um, everyone can relate to music in one way or another, you know, even if it's just you like the lyrics or you like the melodies or you like the beat, everyone, you know, has some love for music and can and can communicate in some way, potentially in a way that they're not able to communicate verbally so um certainly i'm open to any ways in which i can incorporate that in a helpful way in the future wonderful thank you so go ahead dr dorn oh no i you know i was going to ask do you um prefer working with kids or with adults i have preferred working with adults i have a feeling that's probably it's probably going to stay that way i i have worked with uh, a lot of teenagers at the clinic um well not a lot I mean, I'd say it's probably uh, maybe a quarter of the clients that I have are teenagers or young mm -hmm. adults. Um, I really like working with the young adults a lot. Um, in particular, I've been finding that people, kids in their 20s um, that are really trying to find themselves and are just old enough to have, um, you know, sort of a thoughtful conversation about <laughs> where they are in their lives. For me, uh, I, I, just for the type of person I am, the type of therapist I am, I find that to be really engaging sometimes with the younger kids it's a little harder for me to connect which i know i hear a lot of people talk about that and you know it's more of a challenge and some people really thrive in that area that could change you know and i might find that that's a place where i develop more of a connection but um but yeah for now i would say adults are more where it's at for me <laughs> so going back to your book mm -hmm. I actually don't have the privilege of having read it yet, but it's on my to-buy list because um, now I'm really curious. Mm -hmm. um, tell us what the key ideas are behind it for our listeners who might be interested in picking it up. Yeah, um, well, you know, I mean, there's a big element of it that's that's about uh, the alcoholism and addiction recovery, which, but that doesn't come really to the last sort of third of the book. Um, what, you know, everything that leads up to it kind of lays the groundwork for the understanding that anyone who goes through addiction in, in their life and anyone who's gotten into recovery realizes at a certain point that there's something underlying it that is driving the addiction, right? I mean, everyone I've met in recovery will tell you that uh, they were medicating something, self-medicating something, you know, and it's usually some kind of trauma. And so, you know, that was something that I, I, I realized early on at the recovery center and in, you know, AA groups that there's more to this than just a substance um you know it's about mental health at, in a greater degree and I, and so understanding that you know that was another thing that i think i brought to my understanding of psychology when i started studying it uh, and so in my book you know i i go through my mental health even before it was a major problem just in terms of the understanding of the things that were challenges for me what created them um what created my anxieties and my, you know, my dark side, so to speak. Um, and for me, the major sort of issues that ended up culminating with my addiction were perfectionism, 
um, the amount of pressure that I put on myself. That's a big theme that runs through it. Um, and, and, it, and then when, you know, sort of the internal pressure meets the external pressure and the imposter syndrome, which we know a lot about in our profession, right? Uh, that was something I experienced for the first time when I went on the road as a 19 year old playing the drums in a band and all of a sudden being surrounded by uh, musicians who are a lot more accomplished than me and feeling like an imposter, like, what am I doing here? Uh, they're going to figure me out. They're going to find me out that I don't belong here. And it's going to be really embarrassing when it happens on live TV in front of millions of people, you know? So there was a lot of self-consciousness. There was a lot of uh, self-criticism and holding myself to an unrealistic standard. Uh, so that perfectionism, and it, for me, I think the anxiety and the perfectionism manifested a lot as uh, some obsessive compulsive tendencies. I don't know if it ever rose to the level that I would be diagnosable as OCD, but it was certainly um, just a lot of obsessive thoughts and very compulsive behaviors. And, uh, and, and really, uh, if you ask the other guys at the band, they would just say that I was kind of anal <laughs> <laughs> and could be a stickler and just overly organized and wanting everything to be, you know, very scheduled and which was a nice contrast to Adam, who was who was ADD, you know, ADHD by nature and very scatterbrained. And we were kind of polar extreme opposites. So you see also, I think in the relationships, that's the other big factor is how, you know, I relate so much of our psychology is about how we relate to other people, right? So it there's the relationships with the band, there's the relationships with my family and with my girlfriend, who's a big character in the book as well, longtime girlfriend who was with me through all that and um and with and through my recovery as well so um there's a lot of elements of mental health as they play out individually and within my relationships and then with the addiction and the recovery element um these are all things that are very common like i said it's not it's not just for musicians and performers i mean whether you're on stage in front of tens of thousands of people or you're just in an office trying to get through your day um you know, the kind of pressures you put on on yourself, the kind of external pressures that come at you in life and and having to uh, strike a balance in your life between those things. There was no balance in my life in those years when I was touring, you know, and there was just really a, not um, a lot of options in terms of how to create balance in my life and find the, uh, the self-care that I needed. So there's a lot of those elements in, in my understanding now of mental health that run through the story that I think people will, will relate to. Absolutely. Well, it's interesting. Um, when you were talking about the imposter syndrome, I mean, we're all shaking our heads because while we're not performers, at least for me, what I always tell my students and my colleagues is I'm a professor, you know, and, and getting in front I, every single class without fail every single class, I have to psych myself up. It's like, I belong here. I know what I'm talking about. This is, this is my space. This is my field, but it doesn't make it any easier. It doesn't matter whether it's day one of the first semester you ever teacher. In my case, I've been teaching for years and yet every single time. So I understand that that whole imposter syndrome, Dr. Asia actually did an entire study, her dissertation on imposterism. Um, but when you talk about that whole perfectionism, um, for a long time, um, especially for, for myself that I'm a woman, a woman of color, you know, the standard was perfection. The standard was always, you don't make mistakes. You, you don't, you, you stay within the lines, you do X, Y, and Z. Um, and it took my mentor to kind of break me out of that space of, no, it's not, you're not seeking perfection. You're seeking excellence, which is something completely different. 
Um, so can you talk a little bit about how that shift has looked for you going from that perfectionist, that, that OCD anal side of you to something a little bit more balanced? Yeah, that was a, you know, a hard fought lesson. And it was something that um, I struggled with as a, as a young man. I, I, you know, I don't know exactly where, where that came from. You know, my, my parents didn't put a ton of pressure on me. Uh, I think it was probably just positive reinforcement, you know, could be my brother and I were, were high achieving kids and we got a lot of praise, you know, for the things that we did when we did well, when we brought home good grades, we got praise when we, you know, um, stood out in whatever way. Uh, there was not like criticism or like you have to get straight A's or you have to do this or that. But I think I just learned early on that it felt good, you know, to be to to be achieving excellence and to get that that praise. Um, and I, I, I don't know, I was just a sensitive kid and I was I, I held myself up to a high standard. But but it was it was something that that at some points it kind of held me back because the perfection was the enemy of the good. You know, there were things that I um if I have one biggest regret, you know, from those years of my life, it was the defensiveness with which when things were difficult for me, which was not often, but when they were, um, I was like, well, maybe I'm not interested in that anyway, because I didn't like not being great at something, you know? And so as a drummer, I got really good, really fast at first just teaching myself, but then, you know, in realizing, oh, there's so much more to learn and there, there's technique and there, there are things that I could learn that I, I can't teach myself. And my attitude was kind of like, well, those aren't things I really want to learn anyway. And I, I'm good enough at, you know, I'm really good teaching myself and I'm unique. And so I don't need to learn that. And, and I look back and I'm like, God, that was such a childish uh, just defense mechanism trying to avoid the discomfort of being told, you know, oh, you're not great yet. And, and you know, I think being teachable is such an important important thing. And it wasn't, you know, I think the perfectionism hit its peak when I was in my addictive years because I was so isolated and so beaten down by what had happened. My, my self-esteem was really low and I was just really unable to start anything because everything I would start just seemed like it wasn't good enough. And I was holding it up to the standard of what I had already done with the band. So I'm, I'm, I mean, think about it. We, we made this record that sold millions and millions of copies. We won, won Grammy awards and all that. And then I leave the band and I'm trying to produce or write music on my own, do some writing, uh, literature, whatever. And, and then I'm looking at my band still at the top of the charts, putting out hit records and, you know, selling millions of tickets all around the world. And I'm trying to, you know, figure out how to have self-confidence in what I'm doing, comparing it to that. And I was just feeling really sorry for myself. And it, it kind of prevented me from really finding any purpose or, or passion again. Until I got sober and that really changed things for me and my perspective changed. And I think when I was in grad school at Pepperdine, it was the first time in a long time that I had assignments that I had to turn in one way or another. And I had to just start it and finish it and get it done. And I couldn't, it could, at some point I had to be done with it. It couldn't be perfect, right? It just had to be good enough. And then I realized good enough was pretty good, you know? <laughs> and I was like, I'm getting A's, just, just turning my, in my papers and I'm doing really well. And I actually, you know, I'd forgotten, you know, when I, when I apply myself, I, I do well and, and it doesn't have to be perfect. And, and so that was a lesson that in a sober mind, I learned pretty quickly. Um, just, just, just do it. Just put your head down, do the work. 
get it done and move on. There was too much work, you know, to, to dwell on it too long. It was like, I have to turn this paper in and get ready to study for my midterm or whatever, you know? So, so it was just, just do it and, and move forward. And that really taught me the lesson that, um, that it was more important to, to apply myself and to find, uh, to find purpose in the, in the process rather than the, in the outcome. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And, uh, and then writing the book, it was, it was that fine line. And I like the way you said it, you know, excellence versus perfection, because I still held myself to the standard of excellence in writing the book. I wanted it to be as absolutely good as it could be, but I had that perspective now that there is no perfection, no matter how much time I spend on this, no matter how critical I am of my own work, it'll always be a work in progress. And at some point I'll just, I just have to surrender to it, you know? And I think allowing myself that and saying, I'm going to work on it and strive for excellence, but accept that at some point it just has to be done. Uh, That allowed me to do it in a way that it didn't, the, the, the pursuit of excellence didn't get in the way of the good. The perfection was not the enemy of the good. And I was able finally to strike that balance which I do on a daily basis. You know, if I, you could drive yourself nuts sitting in the, in your sessions with your clients, criticizing everything you're doing, you know, did I say that in a way that was helpful enough? Did I, was I clear enough in the way that I gave that feedback? Was that the right question to ask at the right moment? And it's like, it's never going to be the perfect thing at the perfect time. It's going to be a work in progress and you're going to do the best you can. And that's going to be good enough. I think of all those times, right? When we have arguments and like two hours later you're sitting there you're like oh I should have said this and oh this would have been a great comeback but in that moment it doesn't come um sitting in front of a classroom of of doctoral students is the same thing it's like oh I should have presented that theory this way or oh I should have said that or maybe I should have shared this and it's just never ending so um yeah it's (laughs) it's fascinating it's fascinating especially when you're seeing yourself in the eyes of others right so these conversations aren't new. These conversations are conversations we've had multiple times with multiple guests, but they show up slightly different to give us different perspective as we go. Mm-hmm. Um, Asia, is there anything you'd like to chime in? I mean, this is right up your alley. You know what? I, yeah. I mean, when you were talking about perfectionism earlier and I was thinking in my head, oh my God, I talked about this in my um, dissertation because perfectionism is, is a huge deal. I've gone through it. I've gone through everything in like the whole rainbow of imposter syndrome. <laughs> so I was, when you were talking about that and, and what you were kind of going through and and, and what um, Dr. Gabby was also mentioning about what she goes through, it's something that um, really intrigues me because I'm all about what can we do to understand how to overcome imposter syndrome. And so I came up with a four-step model and I'm also realizing it's probably more than just that. It's it's because it's such a mindset issue, Right. Mm-hmm. So, and, and I guess my question that I had wanted to ask too, was what did you do to, what did you do to overcome that perfectionism that you were going through? Well, you know, it's funny, um, you know, the imposter syndrome with the drums, I don't know if that ever really went away. Um, yeah. it, it was difficult because it led to my breakdown. It was a big factor in it. Um, I look back now and I'm able to understand what happened better. And I recognize that, um, Part of it was the mind-body connection, um, something we call focal dystonia or musician's dystonia, which was my body basically telling me, you need to stop doing this. And so I still deal with that to a certain extent in that um, 
I always feel like, you know, I'm not good enough to play the drums. And even when I tell myself otherwise, my body is still programmed to believe that and prevents me from doing what I want to do. So that's like deeply ingrained trauma that I still am working on in terms of um, the, the relationship to the drums and performing. Um, however, as a person in general, and the way that I relate to my life and I go about my life and in my new career, um, I think that that the starting point for me, it's really interesting. I look at what happened with the loss of that career and how I got over it as a process of grief, because I, I had to really grieve that time in my life, that purpose that I had in being the drummer in Maroon 5 and the identity that was wrapped up in that my whole self-definition. And so, you know, my years of addiction and depression and anxiety was kind of a, a long grieving process, which ends with acceptance, right? The final stage of grief. And I hadn't really even thought about this until recently, but acceptance is the, is the end of the stages of grief, but it's also the beginning of the steps of recovery from addiction. So it's an interesting intersection right there where acceptance is the end of one thing and the beginning of another thing. And inherent in that acceptance is a kind of surrender. It's the ability to, to recognize that my way of doing things, my way of trying to control things, and, and perfectionism being a part of that, holding myself up to some unrealistic standards, um, was only shooting myself in the, put, in the foot. My way of doing it was actually hindering me, right? In the same way that, that the alcoholism was an attempt to control negative feelings, to change uh, mental states or physical states, um, it's an illusion, you know, that you can actually achieve that or that you can control it in that way. So having that acceptance in terms of my addiction was also the starting point for me of surrendering that, that, that compulsive energy of thinking that I have power over things that I don't. Um, the serenity prayer became my mantra early on in recovery. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. That, you know, is, as a philosophy, uh, has played a part in everything that I've learned in overcoming the things that challenged me. And, you know, I think perfectionism falls right into that category where it's like this illusion that I have control over, over something that I don't. It's like I can do the best I can and apply myself in the ways that I can and just take pleasure and purpose in the process and not get so hung up on the outcome and whether or not that outcome is perfect or not. Yeah, yeah, that's, um, you, I, I like that you said that. It's like, you know, we can't change things. We have to be understanding of that. And I think once we kind of shift the way we think, I think it helps to go through that process of maybe working towards overcoming that imposterism that we end up dealing with and to lessen the grief that we go through in that process. Yeah. Such good points. Thank you. Yeah. You know, what's funny though, is I, I really haven't experienced, I did experience imposter syndrome a bit when I started school, cause I hadn't been in school in a while. And I was like, what am I doing here? <laughs> but I got over that pretty quick. And I really haven't experienced imposter syndrome as a therapist. I, it's something we talked about in class a lot. But I think it's also for that reason of everything I've learned in my personal journey. I think that for the first time in my life, even though I was just doing it, just starting it and, and had never you know, been in session with a client before, pretty quickly, I felt I have something to offer here. I felt very confident that, you know, and it, it, again, I think if I had been just out of undergrad and then, and then done grad school and then became a therapist, I probably wouldn't have felt that way. It was because I had personal experience with all these things. It was because I felt 
that I could relate to my clients and I had things that I had gained in my journey that maybe they hadn't yet. And I had something to offer. That was a powerful tool in not feeling um, that imposter syndrome. I felt like I belonged where, where I put myself at this point in my life. Yeah. That's wonderful that you feel that. Yeah. I mean, and, it, and I think it takes time, but once you get to that place, you feel like you belong. I think that's, that's the magic that you just said right there. I love that. Yeah. And I, I think there are the, those moments, of course, when I'm like, wow, you know, there's all these wonderful people out there who have all these um, certifications and things that I don't even, you know, haven't begun to study or, um, and I'm like, what, what makes me think I'm so great, you know, just because I, I have this life experience. Uh, and the answer is, I don't think I'm so great. I just think that I have uh, something to offer. And I, and it's my, duty almost to to give of myself in that way because I have something to offer and and that's good enough you know um we can we're always on a on a on a path of learning we, we're never done learning there's the more you learn the more you realize how little you know you know and I think even you know looking at where I'm at in my life in my 40s I think like god I was such an idiot when I was a young man if I only known then what I know now and I have no doubt I'm going to think the same thing when I'm in my 60s right I'm going to look back and say in my 40s I thought I knew everything I didn't know anything you know <laughs> at least I have that perspective now of realizing we're always continuing to learn and it's always a process well it's fascinating that you say that one of the things we espouse uh, in a lot of the courses here at, at GSEP is this whole idea of mindset right and having a growth mindset versus a fixed mindset. And I think that's what you're describing. Um, so I was thinking as I was hearing you speak and I, and I, I saw as I was prepping for this podcast in other spaces where you've talked about your book, you've talked about that exhaustion piece that kind of led you to decide to do something different. Um, and, and you said in one place that, you know, that when you used to hear other group, other bands would canceled tours because they were exhausted or that exhaustion that you always thought they just you know whatever you thought but there, it was always like you know we can do better or what have you um in hindsight if you were to have a conversation with that version of you what advice would you give them well I think you're referring to an article that I wrote in Variety magazine a couple months ago um which was another cool thing to get to do at this point in my life. Uh, I had I had thought if I if the if the band hadn't hadn't worked out that I might be a music journalist. That was another thing I, I thought about with my English degree. Um, so when Variety magazine approached me to write an article, uh, that was like oh I didn't even seek that out and here it is and that was just another you know lifelong dream come true. Um, and what it was about was about. Um, finally for the first time in the music industry you're seeing a shift to actually starting to prioritize the mental health of of artists and you're seeing young artists who are talking about their mental health and who are prioritizing their mental health that they're you know canceling tours because of their mental health and things like that and that's a that's a, just a dynamic shift from what, the way it was in the past and and in my life the way that it was in 2002 when we went on the road to promote uh, to promote songs about Jane, um, the instructions they gave us were say yes to everything. Uh, you know, you don't know if you're going to get this opportunity again. And basically, if you say yes to everything that is offered you, you lay the groundwork for a career. 
because if you say no to you know a promoter or a magazine or a radio station or whatever it is, uh, they're not going to ask again, right? So it was good advice from a business standpoint, you know, in terms of uh, you know creating a career as sustainable career. But as we know, in, in terms of self care, it's totally toxic advice, you know, saying yes to everything, not being able to say no and prioritize your own health uh, and things like sleep <laughs> and rest, uh, you know, and making sure that you're not overwhelmed with the amount that's on your plate. Um, so it, like I said earlier, you know, there weren't a lot of options for me at that point. I was in a band with four other guys. There was a whole, uh, you know, a, a, a basically a whole business that was centered around the band at that point with our record label and our management and promotional team and everything. So me raising my hand and saying, you know, I'm exhausted. Uh, I need to take a break. Wasn't really an option. However, I don't know that I would have said that anyway, you know, because we were all of that mindset. Like we just got to, we got to buckle down and, and just do it. You know, we're going to, we don't know if we're going to get this chance again and whether it's for a month or a year or 10 years, as long as this wave is going to take us, we just have to keep going and push through. And that was really helpful to the the further furthering of the band, but it, it it built up over time, this exhaustion in me, which, you know, I talk about it in that article. And I think what you're referring to, I used to hear people talk about, you know, the, the, it was code word when people would cancel the tour. I remember in particular, maybe in the late 90s, there was uh, Mariah Carey canceled the tour and they said due to exhaustion. And that was a common phrase that was used, you know, tour canceled due to exhaustion. And I, I rolled my eyes at that time when I would hear an artist canceled something due to, I just thought that meant they must have a drug problem that they're not talking about, you know, they're going into rehab or they're being a diva, you know, and they don't want to admit it. They're just like, they're, they don't want, you know, to do what's, they're, they're not, they're letting their fans down, you know, and they don't want to just admit that. And then, you know, in retrospect, I realized there was probably more than meets the eye. And you couldn't talk about your mental health in those, in the ways that we do now back then. You know, you couldn't say, I'm really struggling and I need a break. I know I promised you guys that I was doing this big tour, but I just did six months overseas and you know what? I'm going to come back and I'm going to give you a great tour. But for right now, the best thing I can do for you is make sure I'm doing okay and take that time for myself. If you said that, you would be, first off, people would say, oh, mental health. In those days, they would think, oh, there's something really wrong with you because there was more stigma attached to it. Not that there isn't stigma still today, but we're doing better than we were in the past in terms of the, the dialogue that we're having around it. So I, this is kind of a long-winded answer, but <laughs> basically, I, I think that um, I, exhaustion was a term that was a code word, and now we can actually talk about mental health in a way that's healthier for artists. And so, for me, that just the way that it applies to my life now is just, you know, taking my self-care uh, as a high priority. It's extremely important for me because if I'm not doing well, my clients are not going to benefit from me being there. You know, me showing up when I'm at 50% uh, is not going to help anyone. I need to make sure I'm at, at, at 90 or 100%, you know, to do good work. So that's how I relate to all that. And I wrote that article because I wanted to applaud, you know, both the artists and the people in the industry that are supporting young artists who are taking that mindset and, and open up the possibility that people will have that opportunity to say no and not have it be detrimental to their career in the way that it would have been for us. 
And yeah, it's the variety article that 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 I was referring to. So thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Um, we're here at time. So before we go, is there anything else you would like to share with our audience? Um, any final words of wisdom? Although everything you shared tonight has been a very, uh, has been very wise um, as we go. Thank you. Well, thanks again for this opportunity. This has been a lovely conversation and it's been nice to meet all of you. Um, you know, I'll just say, you know, my book, Harder to Breathe, um, it, it's a passion project for me, but I also really believe that it can help people. Uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have written it at this point in my life if I didn't believe that. And uh, I, I'm, I'm, it's, I'm really proud in promoting it because I think that people will relate to it on a very uh, human level. Uh, it is fun. It is exciting. It is about the early years of Maroon 5 and all that. And if you're a fan, you'll like it extra for that reason. But I think that if you if you want, you know, a, a story of vulnerability uh, and a story about um, finding a new chapter in life after you've struggled, finding purpose and meaning again, finding fulfillment, uh, that you're going to find that in this book. And it's a hopeful book. Uh, so that's it. That's my final pitch for that. And thank you again for this opportunity. Awesome. Thank you. And I wouldn't, I won't hear the end of it if I don't ask you this question from our Dean. So I'm going to ask it just to put it out there. So are you coming back for your doctorate to Pepperdine? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I toyed with that idea for a minute, you know, when I was, uh, in the middle of the program, I was like, maybe I should just keep going. Um, you know, for now, I mean, working with clients was the end goal, you know, getting to that part of my career. Uh, I never had, you know, real, a real idea of doing uh, research. That wasn't a part of what I, I anticipated doing with my career. It was really about getting into the rooms with people and helping people. Again, never say never. That could change. And, right. um, you know, there are different focuses to a, to a doctoral program, I suppose, a PsyD as opposed to a PhD. And um, I wouldn't have anticipated, you know, getting my master's in my 40s. So who knows? Maybe I'll get my PhD in my 50s. You never know. <laughs> right. You can always come back. You're always welcome. Um, well, I, I won't speak for this ID program because that's the other side of the house. But I can speak for our doctoral programs. Okay. Um, uh, so with that, um, any other final questions to the panel and our uh, hosts? Well, just thank you for the work that you're doing. I, I, I'm so it's so nice to see that you guys are 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 doing this um, and providing this service. And it's um, I'm going to have to tune in more often and and hear the things that you're the people you're talking to and what you're talking about. Um, you know, Pepperdine has been such a, a was a you know a great experience for me. And and to reach out to the alumni association and get the response that I have has been so wonderful. So, you know, just thank you for doing what you're doing. No, thank you. Thank you for your kind words. Um, all of us here, well, I won't speak for anyone else. I'm orange and blue through and through. I have a long history with Pepperdine, so I appreciate I appreciate your words and from just the community perspective. So with that, um, thank you all for joining us. If you've enjoyed today's session, please remember to click the subscribe button. Have a wonderful uh, rest of your week, and we'll see you all next week.